So let's go ahead and get started with a word of prayer, shall we? Our precious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity once together, once again to meet uh, as a body of believers uh, and to uh, study uh, the history of your work uh, in the church. Uh, we thank you for this opportunity uh, to come to a chapter where we get to look at and discuss uh, the benefits of having a word that is truly from you, Lord, uh, and help us as we uh, perhaps have more clarity over, uh, over, uh, over your word and the importance of how we view your word, uh, we ask that you'll bless our efforts uh, and apply some of these truths to our lives. Uh, and uh, it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. All right. <clears throat> so uh, I have a lot to say and is pretty typical. I'll say it quickly. Uh, so I had an extra measure of caffeine this morning to make sure that I can do that. Uh, so my name is John Reams, and I am an elder here at Grace PCA, and we are continuing uh, our study uh, through this book, Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham Machen. Uh, and this morning we're speaking on chapter 4, uh, the Bible. So as, as has been communicated before, the chapters in this book are laid out in a very logical fashion uh, to best make the overall argument. Uh, that's why it's always worth it uh, to do a quick review of what's come before. Chapter 1 is the introduction. And in that chapter, it was pointed out that liberal theology is not Christianity. This is why, again, the title of the book is Christianity and Liberalism. Okay? If, the, if you read a book called Cheeseburgers and Pizza, it would be clear to you that the book is talking about two different things. And that's, that's the case here. Uh, modernism driven by science and philosophy. Bad science and bad philosophy, by the way. Hopefully I can talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, modernism and its byproduct, theological liberalism, should be contrasted with Christianity. Unfortunately, what so many did and still do is attempt to absorb it uh, into Christianity. Uh, and and, and that's, that's basically what we see in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we discuss doctrine. Is doctrine a good thing or is doctrine a bad thing? Liberals say it's bad. Why? Because they hold on to this illusion that Christianity was about experience, not creeds. All right, and remember, remember that line later, by the way. So doctrine is important, assuming you actually want to know stuff. Right? Chapter 3, the doctrines of God and man. Uh, Mr. Parks Turner spoke on this wonderfully last week. If you weren't here to, uh, to listen, I encourage you to go back uh, and listen if you're able to. And the point from last week was that before any of this can mean anything, we must understand what Machen calls the two great presuppositions. We must know something about God, and we must know something about man, ourselves. Who is God and who am I? All discussion of justification begins with the knowledge that God is God and I am not. Isaiah 45.5 reads, and forgive me as I grab the glasses. Isaiah 45.5 reads, I am the Lord and there is no other. It goes on to say, I equip you, though you do not know me. Who is the you? Man. Right? Also, question three from the Westminster Standards asks, what do the scriptures principally teach? The answer, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. 
So there we have it. There's God and there's man. And also last week, Parks pointed out the connection or the close relationship between religion and philosophy. In a sense, they're inseparable. And that's okay. But what's not okay is when our religion attempts to import or make peace with a false philosophy. Uh, I believe the $5 word for this is syncretism. Um, in reality, science, religion, and philosophy will always end up in the same place. Or more specifically, true science, true religion, and true philosophy will end up at the same place. As Machen puts it, and I quote, all methods of arriving at truth, if they be valid methods, will arrive at a harmonious result. So again, we're studying two separate things, Christianity and liberalism. So now follow me here. If to rightly understand Christianity, you must rightly understand God and man, then to be a good theological liberal, you need to not rightly understand God and man. Today we're studying the chapter on the Bible. So likewise, I could say um, to, be, to understand Christianity, you must rightly understand the Bible. And then to be a good theological liberal, you need to not rightly understand the Bible. And they know this, by the way, and that's why they, they try their best to deceive uh, people at these levels. Parks recommended uh, to me last week that Romans 12 is a good entry point to this chapter. Uh, so I agree with him, and I'm going to take him up on that. So this is uh, Romans 12, 2 and 3. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, which of course can only come by the word that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by, for by grace, excuse me, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So we spoke earlier of presuppositions and the two great presuppositions uh, from, chap, from, the, from chapter 3. Here's one. Here's another presupposition. The Christian message has come to us through the Bible. So as Machen asks, what shall we think, therefore, about this book? Now, we've all heard messages, uh, lectures, podcasts, probably read books on the trustworthiness and historicity of the Bible. In other words, history, archaeology, always ends up proving the Bible uh, rather than disproving it. Uh, and this is always very disconcerting, by the way, to the skeptic, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. So this happens in science, too, by the way. Uh, true story. My children last week made a great point. One of them asked, doesn't the second law of thermodynamics contradict the theory of evolution? I said, yes, entropy is not the evolutionist's friend. And then one of them made the point, so they still hold on desperately to a theory, even though this theory is contradicted by a law. I reminded them of something that Pastor David said from the pulpit years ago. Sin makes you stupid. <laughs> and he also said sin makes you a coward. It's awfully difficult to admit you're wrong, even when you obviously are. Uh, to, quote, to quote Chevy Chase, if I may, from one of his movies, uh, when somebody proved him uh, wrong about something, he says, quote, 
It takes a big man to admit when he's wrong. I am not a big man. So to some extent, that's true of all of us, but it's especially true of the enemies of God. Okay, so I digress. The point of this chapter isn't so much to prove the historicity of the Bible as it is to contrast the view of the Bible between the Christian and the liberal. What then shall we think of the Bible? Well, given the presupposition, and remember that a presupposition is a truth assumed beforehand at the beginning of a line of argument. So given the presupposition that the Christian message comes to us through the Bible and the inverse is true, the liberal message does not come to us through the Bible, let's glean from this chapter five corollaries uh, from that presupposition. What is a corollary? A corollary is a proposition that follows from and is often amended to uh, or appended to one already proved. Uh, which means that each corollary is a truth statement that logically flows from the presupposition, which is the underlying or foundational truth statement. So, corollary number one, and these come, these come from Machen. According to the Christian view, the Bible contains an account of a revelation from God to man, which is found nowhere else. Uh-oh. But, but what if I want to be a cult leader? Those last five words are, are a big problem, which is found nowhere else. But wait a minute. What if I find a book of golden plates in the ground? Well, our honest answer would be to maybe melt them down and use it to go buy a nice suit. That, that could be good. God's Word comes to us only in the Bible. Now remember, we've talked about two types of revelation, uh, general revelation and special revelation. Machen refers to general revelation in this context as the revelation of God in nature. Psalm 19.1, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. He then refers to special revelation as that which is attested by the conscience. We are told that God has put eternity into man's hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11 These words, by the way, anticipate the opening of Augustine's confession where he states, and I quote, To praise you is the desire of man, a little piece of your creation. You stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So we feel this because God has made himself known to us in nature, and he's put eternity in our hearts. We all feel that we are accountable um, and therefore have a problem. But, because of God's special revelation to us, we can know that. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So God is revealed in nature, but the blue skies and clouds won't tell us much about substitutionary atonement or double imputation, right? But that's where the Bible comes in. On to corollary number two. The Bible also contains an account of a revelation which is absolutely new. And what is that new revelation? Well, I think we all know the answer. Uh, as, as Machen puts it, it's the way by which sinful men can come into communion with the living God. 2,000 years ago, the eternal Son was given as a sacrifice for our sins. The entire Old Testament looks forward to this, and the whole of the New Testament is centered around it. So what does the Bible tell us? It tells us that salvation is something that was is not something. It tells us that salvation was not something 
that was discovered like a fountain of youth or a box of cream-filled donuts. It was something that happened. Like creation, it is not something that was discovered. It was something that happened. And in this, the Bible is unique. We might find other religions uh, or religious texts with similar ideas that Christianity might have, but that does not make it Christianity. I have ten toes. Joe Fowler has ten toes, I assume. But that similarity does not make us the same. Now, skeptics will say, and listen carefully, listen carefully, skeptics will say that Christianity and other religions are just superficially different, but fundamentally the same. That is both wrong and backwards. Christianity and other religions may have superficial similarities, but are fundamentally different. The English writer and poet Steve Turner so beautifully and sarcastically put it this way, and I quote, We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the ones that we read were. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. I think that makes a good point. So I don't want to to belabor this point, but I will therefore do it anyway. Um, Some religions like Buddhism take an epistemological approach. If I just learn something, I'll find spiritual meaning and truth. Others, like Islam, take a pragmatic path. If I just do something, I'll find spiritual meaning and truth. Still others, such as many New Age religions, try an existential method. If I just experience something, I'll find spiritual meaning and truth. By the way, you might be thinking, huh, I feel like we see some of this creeping into the church. And unfortunately, you'd be right. Remember what I said earlier about mixing good religion with bad philosophy? Uh, For some reason, it's really easy to deceive people into doing just that. So again, the Bible, and only the Bible, reveals to us the way by which sinful men can come into communion with the living God. But then we get this common objection that Machen says. Must we depend upon what happened so long ago? Does salvation wait upon the examination of musty records? Can we not find instead a salvation that is independent of history? A salvation that depends only on what is with us here and now. Now as Machen himself actually acknowledged, this objection is not devoid of weight. We can all look at this and kind of think, all right, I I can kind of see where the skeptics are coming from. But this objection is based on a logical fallacy which is to say something that happened so long ago could not possibly have such importance on me uh, in the here and now. How could events from long ago dictate the reality of today? Now, I bet if I were to go one by one through the sanctuary this morning, which I won't because I run out of time, but I bet if I went one by one through the sanctuary this morning that every one of us could give us an example of just that, right? Something that happened long ago is still having an effect an impact on us as individuals or as humanity as a whole today. Um, I just flew a couple of weeks ago um, to Pittsburgh and and experienced the direct result of something that happened. Hold on while I do math. 22 years, two months, and one day ago. College students today mostly were not alive when that happened, but they are still experiencing the same effects of 9-11 that I do or that we do when we fly. 
When we go through an airport, it doesn't matter if we were alive in 2001 or not. We're still affected by what, by what happened then. What effects linger in reality today from the Challenger disaster? The assassination of JFK, the sinking of the Titanic, uh, or perhaps the biggest turning point of the 20th century, the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand that started World War I, without which we would have not had World War II, without which we would not have had... Well, you get the point. We could do this all day long. Uh, so whether it's 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago, of course we are affected indirectly and directly by what happened before us. Think of this. We're directly affected by God creating all things, by Adam sitting in the garden, and most certainly by Jesus Christ living, dying, and being raised from the dead, thus being a living Savior today. Machen also makes the point that one of the great evidences of the gospel record is found in Christian experience. Uh, often we hear that word experience and we shrink, but we shouldn't. There is power in the Word. We know that. We see that in our own experiences and in the experiences of others. However, uh, it is with this concept that liberalism steps into fatal error. The listen carefully. The true Christian experience confirms the gospel message. And without the gospel message, there is no true Christian experience. So the mistake the liberal makes is to jump straight to the experience as the only thing uh, that's necessary. They can say, can we still not have Christ in our souls without worrying about what's true in the Bible and what's not? It's okay if I think that science has debunked the entire Bible as long as I feel I have the Jesus experience. People actually say that. The problem is although that that might be some sort of religious experience, uh, it is not a Christian experience. Machen says that the true Christian experience would lead you to say to yourself the following. This is a little bit of a longer quote, so hang on. I have meditated upon the problem of becoming right with God. I have tried to produce a righteousness that will stand in His sight. But when I heard the gospel message, I learned that what I had weakly striven to accomplish had been accomplished, past tense, by the Lord Jesus Christ when He died for me on the cross and completed His redeeming work by the glorious resurrection. If the thing has not yet been done, future tense, i.e. it still lies in some future work, if I merely have an idea of its accomplishment, then I am of all men most miserable. That reminds me of 1 Corinthians 15, 19, by the way. For I am still in my sins. My Christian life then depends altogether upon the truth of the New Testament record. And I want to read something else from the book. And remember, this was written a hundred years ago. We know that the gospel story is true partly because of the early date of the documents in which it appears, the evidence as to their authorship, the internal evidence of their truth, the impossibility of explaining them as being based upon deception or upon myth. Now, I'll read that to make this point. He was able to say this in 1923. The Bible is the most scrutinized book in history. And here we are in 2023, and it's even more clear a hundred years later, that the Bible has, as historical record is trustworthy. And since it is the Word of God, that will continue to be the case over the next hundred years and beyond. The Christian experience, including the role that emotions rightly play, is as Machen so poet poetically puts it, remember this is the Christian experience and the role that emotions play, he describes as the following. 
a fair flower and should be prized as a gift of God. But cut it from its root in the blessed book and it soon withers away and dies. So we must take this very seriously. Don't think anyone is immune to this. We should always be aware. Now, I only tell this story uh, as a proof of that. Um, Lisa and I have been married for, hold on for math, 23 years, 3 months, and, and almost 12 days. We lived in nine different places over four, four different states. Uh, we've been to a lot of churches. Not too many years ago uh, in a PCA church uh, that will remain unnamed, Lisa was in a um, women's Bible study that seemed to spend a lot of time on everything but the Bible. They asked Lisa one, uh, one Wednesday or whatever day it was to lead the next uh, women's study. So she comes in with a, with a well-prepared study from a particular Bible passage, uh, followed by ostensibly discussion. Afterwards, she was told, and I believe it was actually by the wife of an elder, that they don't want so much, quote, Bible time in their Bible study. And I think two of the quotes to her were, try being less prepared and let the Spirit move. And, almost in a condescending way, I appreciate that you love the Bible so much, but we do things a little different here. They wanted to talk about life, experiences, and emotion. So even in, in the PCA in, in some corners, there was a desire to elevate experience and emotion over the Bible, or even in place of the Bible. So we should all always stay in God's Word to prevent us from kind of veering into some sort of emotionalism uh, or existentialism. Corollary number three. The Bible might contain an account of a true revelation from God, and yet the account be full of error. Therefore, before the full authority of the Bible can be established, it is necessary to attend to the doctrine of inspiration as well as the doctrine of revelation. So here, with this doctrine of inspiration, we get to use another $5 phrase, plenary inspiration. If you're taking notes, as P-L-E-N-A-R-Y, and I'll explain what that means in a minute. Plenary inspiration. So what is plenary inspiration? First of all, what does it not mean? In this context, what does that inspiration not mean? So it's not an inspiration the same way I might use when describing myself writing a book or a piece of music uh, or uh, writing the duets that sometimes we play on Sunday mornings. So let's not make the mistake of thinking the authors of the Bible were inspired in that sense. The King James Bible translates 2 Timothy 3.16 like this, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. This is the idea that God breathed into the biblical writers. He did this by a spirit. God ensured that what they wrote was what He wanted to say. Nothing more, nothing less. So if you want to hear the Word of God, what do you do? You read your Bible. The ESV gets the translation better when it reads, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And by the way, the words all Scripture are important. This means that all of it is trustworthy. The word plenary means full, of, uh, full or complete. So the words plenary inspiration mean it is completely inspired by the Word of God. Some people as we heard last week, get caught up in the red, the red words or the red letters in the Bible as if they carry more weight. No. 
all Scripture is God-breathed. All of it has the authority of God and His Christ. 2 Peter 1.21 says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. And by the way, this does not imply some mechanical dictation as if their eyes rolled, rolled in their heads, they went, into, uh, they went into some sort of trance, and then their pens were just kind of guided by some sort of magic. This is clearly not the case, as you see the varying personalities and writing styles of every individual biblical author throughout the Scriptures. Um, one of many things I like about this church. Uh, when, when in the pulpit, we will we'll often hear the pastor focus on a single word, the original meaning of the word, uh, or perhaps the tense of a verb, such as perfect continuous or irregular past tense, right? Uh, this is not something trivial to show off knowledge. Let me explain why. Think about Jesus when he argued from Scripture. Often his arguments depended on a single word or tense. So here we also see the concept of verbal inspiration, which means God did not give the authors kind of just a general idea or impression, and then the authors take that and run with it. God's inspiration extends down to the very words and verb tenses used. Uh, so there we have it. Verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. When we open God's Word, we can be sure that what we're reading was breathed out by God, down to every jot and tittle. Remember Matthew 5.18? If that weren't the case, why would that verse be there? So what is the liberal response to plenary inspiration? That's stupid. Okay, that's about it. It's no more sophisticated than that. The liberal preacher will speak in broad terms such as, it's mechanical. It's just dictation. That's superstitious. It's unscientific, they say. But when given the opportunity to give specific, specific examples of error, um, they usually shy away. They're not dumb. They know that if they make a specific claim, that that specific claim is potentially falsifiable. That would undercut their entire smoke and mirrors strategy. They're just content to say, the Bible contains some truths and contains some non-truths. Well, Christians, we worship a God of truth. We don't worship a God of some truth. However, as Machen stated it even 100 years ago, and it's just as true today, he says, it must be admitted that there are many Christians who do not accept the doctrine of plenary inspiration. Many Christians will deny, or I would say at least, embarrassed to admit that they believe in the, in the inerrancy of Scripture. I believe some are afraid to appear not smart around the elite and the academic types. Uh, and, and that, my friends, is a very poor way to build a, a worldview. Um, so this is, this is definitely something that we have to be very careful about but many do it. They try to have their cake and eat it too. Or what parts, you used that last week. I remember the slide. So uh, they try to speak out of both sides of their mouths. There we go. Um, they will say on one hand, the central message of the Bible is true. The redeeming work of Christ, but also believe it contains many errors. 
Machen says that such men are not liberals, but are Christians because they still believe as true the gospel message. And of course, the trouble here is that Jesus himself seemed to hold the high view of the Bible that such men reject. Machen takes this even further and states that the modern liberal rejects not only the doctrine of plenary inspiration, but even such respect for the Bible as would be proper over against any ordinarily trustworthy book. So what is the, what is the liberal view, therefore, as to the seat of authority of their religion? Machen points out the habit of many to say that they don't trust in the authority of the Bible. They trust in the authority of Christ. Right. They depend on Jesus alone. Sounds good. To which my question to them would be, who is Jesus and how do you know that? Anyway, and not surprisingly, what are, the two, what, what are two of the first things to get jettisoned by this now, nice sounding yet fallacious um, argument or statement? The entire Old Testament and many, if not all, the writings of Paul. But the liberal feels really good about himself because he's able to say he depends on Jesus alone. It, it, it reminds me of what some evangelicals even say, no creed but Christ. All right? Now that really makes no sense because just as before, they have to answer, who is Christ and how do you know that? So now, even, even though a theological liberal might say he depends on Jesus alone, we know logically this cannot be true. Given their view of the authority of the Bible, which takes us to our next corollary, corollary number four, the modern liberal does not hold fast even to the authority of Jesus. Among the recorded words of Jesus in the Bible are to be found the very things that the liberals find most abhorrent. So anyone who knows what Jesus actually said in the Bible would see right through their argument. So, know your Bible. Jesus um, also, among his other words in Scripture, points forward to the revelation that will be given through his apostles. Some of the very writings the liberals reject. So therefore, the liberal doesn't even believe all of the red words of the Bible. They have to pick and choose which parts that will fit their prefabricated narrative. At this point, you no longer have faith in God's Word. You no longer have faith in the words of Jesus. You have faith in some fallen human who is going to tell you which parts of the Bible to believe and which parts of the Bible not to believe. So if old Jim Bob is in the pulpit telling you which parts to believe, you're now putting your faith in Jim Bob for your eternal soul. All right, I think I would refer to this as a red flag. So the question is, is there a way around this red flag for the liberal? Well, just like with politicians, if truth is not necessary, then of course there is. Just weave together a rational-sounding sentence and people who want to believe it can believe it. Here's the verbal sleight of hand that they use, and I quote uh, from the book. Even if not everything Jesus is recorded as saying is true, we can all agree that his central life purpose is still to be regarded as regulative for the church. Okay, so what's his life purpose? Well, we know as Christians what it actually is. Mark 10.45, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, the beauty of postmodern thought is that we can say whatever we want to say, and then we can change it daily depending on our needs. You simply, and here's the strategy, you simply isolate and purposely misinterpret an element of Jesus' teaching, and then you apply it based on the need of the day or whatever modern program you might be trying to push. Um, you know, anyone could do that with any historical figure. Think about that. We could do that with any historical figure. You could make a game out of it. 
it'd be a very weird game, but a game nonetheless. Uh, so, so to save time, um, if you boil everything down that they are actually saying, the liberal theologian can only have as authority individual experience. Truth, I say in quotation marks, can only be that which helps each individual person. Individual experience can be endless, endlessly diverse. Therefore, they say truth is endlessly diverse. Truth can be relative, except in my bank account statements. A brief side note. Um, in his book, Modern Times, Paul Johnson states that the modern world began on May 29, 1919. Why? Because on this day, photographs of a solar eclipse taken off the island of Principe and uh, off of West Africa uh, and at Sobral in Brazil confirmed the truth of a new theory. All of his theories depended on something, a specific thing happening with this solar eclipse, and it happened, and it proved a theory. Which theory? One that a German Jew named Albert Einstein come to, uh, came up with uh, that we know as the theory of relativity. That changed the way people viewed the physical world. We were used to uh, Newtonian physics um, and all the right angles and straight lines. Suddenly, time and space are not constants. Okay, fine. The problem came when this scientific theory moved into, the philo into philosophy. And for the first time, at popular levels, people started to say confidently that not only is time and space relative, so is truth. There was no longer a unified belief in the existence of absolute truth. And this was a huge mistake, obviously. And no one was more distressed than Einstein himself seeing this happen. He was, the word he used, he was bewildered over the errors being spun out of his work. Einstein believed in absolute truth. He also believed in a, in a creator God, by the way. So he lived to see this moral relativism become, as he put it, a disease that became a social pandemic. After seeing the unintended consequences of his research, he later said that sometimes he had wished he had just remained a simple watchmaker. Um, but for the liberal, they were happy with what Einstein called a social pandemic. It ended up becoming very useful for him. So now, in contrast, we have our fifth and final corollary. The Christian man, on the other hand, finds in the Bible the very word of God. Dependence on the word of man such as old Jim Bob telling us which parts of the Bible to trust, is slavish. Depending on the word of, the depend, uh, dependence on the Word of God is life. It is not a burdensome law to Christians, but as Machen puts it, it's the very Magna Carta of Christian liberty. So it's no wonder then that liberalism and Christianity are two different religions. They are founded on two different things. Christianity is founded upon the Bible, Liberalism, says Machen, is founded upon the experience, or as he puts it, the shifting emotions of sinful men. I thought about this. Um, there are four options for how you treat the Word of God when presented with it. One, you put your faith in it as the Word of God. Two, you reject it outright. Three, you change it by adding to it. Cults, right? Four, you change it by subtracting from it. Theological liberalism. We know that two is bad, right? Rejecting it. And we also know from the end of Revelation that three and four is bad. Adding to or subtracting from. And everybody will do one of these things. I will say this. I know that when I'm 
quoting scriptures, I know that I'm quoting the very word of God. And that will never change. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God does not change. His word does not change. The way to salvation does not change. I want to finish with this quote by Raymond Ordland Jr. And I want you to remember this. Listen closely. I want you to remember this during the sermon today. Every time you hear the Word of God preached, you come away from that exposure to His truth either a little closer to God or a little further away from God. Either more softened toward God or more hardened. But you are never just the same. And praise God for that. Let's play. Let's, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a word that we can trust. We confess to you that it is sin to ignore or deny parts of the Bible we find difficult. So we ask, Lord, that you'll give us grace to understand these parts. We thank you for the faithful pastors we have here at Grace who preach and teach your word to us. Give us, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, a great love for you and for your word. Stir in us a desire and diligence to study your word because we know that in it we find true joy and freedom. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.